if you would take your Bibles and turn to Jonah in the Old Testament, I'll meet you in chapter 3 in just a moment. The Lord, uh, chapter 1 begins with this, the Lord gave his, this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket, went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. And the story of Jonah as we know it starts. Um, this is Jonah's response to God's task for him. And when God calls his servant, a prophet, an Old Testament officer, when he calls him to do something he doesn't want to do, he runs the opposite way. And verse 4 tells us what he did. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, verse 5 of chapter 1 says, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep in the, in, down in the hold. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God chastens his children. He, he's treating us like children. He disciplines us when we run the opposite direction. And I, get he, I guess he meant it. Because unfortunately, not only does God chastening Jonah affect him, but also all the sailors on the ship. Uh, verse 7, we'll pick up the story there. The crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused a terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified um, Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it, they groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do now to stop this storm? Verse 12, throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Jumping down to verse 15, it says, then the sailors picked Jonah up. And he threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. Verse 16, the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed that day to serve him. I ask you uh, again, as I have in recent weeks, who is this God that even takes his servant's sin and draws people to himself? And based upon that verse, it is reasonable to believe that these sailors get saved as a result of Jonah's sin and the power of God in dealing with him. You know, it is, I, I just want to say something clear that I hopefully hope you're learning in our time here, but God has a plan for mankind. He has a plan for this world, and it's going to happen whether we want it to or not. The question is, are we going to voluntarily go with him? He invites us. I remember as a kid being taught over and over that God needed me to help him fulfill his plan, and I want to say this morning, based upon Scripture, he doesn't need us. He wants us. He invites us to participate in what he's doing in this community and in our workplaces and in our homes and in this world. He invites us to participate. And if we say no to our task, he will chase us. Verse 17, so the Lord Ubered a great fish. I got a lot of questions about Uber this week. Thank you for paying attention. So God had, the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside of the fish for three days and three nights. 
Some are asking, why would God do this to his kid? It isn't nice. That isn't nice to do that to him. But Hebrews chapter 12 tells us why he did it. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure his divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by his father? If God didn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. And so it was with Jonah. Once he gets this spanking, once he ends up in the belly of the whale... Once he realizes it's his rebellion, again, he knew it all along, but once he realizes the cost was too great, Jonah chapter 2 and what we looked at last week, his response, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside of the fish, and he said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths and sank down into the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth with whose gates lock shut forever. But you, O Lord, my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their, backs on, turn their backs on all God's mercies, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Verse 10, then the Lord ordered, ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Taking us to chapter 3, Jonah the prophet had repented of his rebellion against the Lord. When trapped in the belly of the big fish, he realized that he had created his own tomb, and he cries out to God for salvation. In case you're not clear on this, 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 this story is not about a whale. Jonah is not about a whale. It isn't even about a guy. It's about a God who's merciful to folks. It's about a guy who's merciful to a bunch of guys on a boat. To a nation of wicked people, we'll get into that. But it's about a God who also shows mercy to a rebellious child. And this is truly a father-son relationship, if you don't get it. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. So in the end of chapter 2, he spits him out on the shore. Chapter 3 begins with the Lord speaking to Jonah again a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Deliver the message I have given you. My goodness, I want you to remember your, your parenting days. Or if you're a grandparent, you remember, you, you see it with your grandkids. But how many times do you have to ask your kids to do the right thing? At least twice. I, I just, I hope as we keep going through scriptures, you see that the relationship God wanted with us was not king to servant, but dad to child. He's very merciful. And he talks to him like a kid and he tells him to go back. It's a father-son relationship. Verse 3, this time 
Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. The author of this story, probably Jonah himself, calls this great city uh, three times in this Old Testament book a great, amazing city. As I mentioned our first week together, the city, when encompassing all of the suburban areas and the communities around it, is about 60 miles wide. There are two walls that surround the city. One wall is the innermost wall. It surrounds the downtown area, the area where, where uh, much, of, much of business is done. That wall is about eight miles long, 100 feet tall, and 50 feet wide. There are 15 gates on that wall. And each of those gates has a regiment of military to protect the innermost parts. The other wall is around the outskirts of the city, actually encompassing most of the suburbs and a lot of the fields where the animals are kept. Obviously, it doesn't take a brain surgeon or a military expert to realize that the outer wall simply slows down enemies when they attack the Assyrians, giving them time to go into the inner wall where they could live for many, many years with the food that they had stored up. This was a sophisticated city. This was a city that had it going on. And I want to remind you that in some of our teaching of Jonah and the story here, that we, we, misrepresent, um, we misrepresent this community. This was not a uniquely wicked city. This city was as wicked as everybody else. How can I say that? Because the scripture actually points out another city that was exceedingly wicked, Sodom and Gomorrah, two other cities. The, uh, the city of Nineveh was an Assyrian city, and they were a wicked people, don't get me wrong. They had false gods. But they weren't any more wicked than another city. I think the reason, and I've told you this just about every week, I think the reason we, we give it such, uh, such an evil reputation is it makes us feel better about why Jonah might not want to go there. But to the best of our knowledge, the reason Jonah didn't want to go there was simple. He was prejudiced. He didn't want to be with these people. Didn't like them. They weren't Jews. And he was afraid God was going to show them mercy. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. What do we do when God's plan, as we know it, is not the plan we want. Boy, is that great conversation for a political year. We'll get there next week. But the reality is that Jonah rejected God's plan because he knew God would be merciful. And the response of the people this time, well, verse 4. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Wow. Verse 6. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, took off his royal robes, dressed himself in burlap, and sat on a heap of ashes. That sounds funny. Great for a video. But you realize what he's doing. He's saying, there's somebody greater than me. You know, when he takes off of his royal robes, when he dresses like the people in the streets who are repenting, he is saying, I'm not the king of kings. Now, I want you to remember that every king claimed to be the king of kings. From Nebuchadnezzar to Pharaoh. Pharaoh stands against Moses, uh, God's prophet, and tells God, Who's your, your God can't fight me. Your God has no power over me and brings his own sorcerers in to duplicate, duplicate the plagues. 
Or you remember the question of Nebuchadnezzar to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they stand before him because they refuse to bow before his, his statue of himself. When they refuse to bow, he asks them a simple question, and it is the question that enacts all the stuff that happened in the fiery furnace. If you don't bow today, boys, I am going to throw you into that furnace over there. And what God can save you from my hand? That's the question. And yet this king, the Assyrian king, steps down from his throne, takes off his robe, dresses himself in burlap, and sits on a, a heap of ashes. You want to know what he was thinking? The next verse tells us. Then the king and his nobles sent a decree throughout the city. Not one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. I don't, I don't want you to miss what happened here. Jonah comes in and delivers God's message. And those that hear it immediately believe his message and begin to repent. And word goes to the king of his message, and the king repents, and his court. And then the king and his court send a message throughout the whole land that everybody is obligated by law under the authority of the king to bow to the king of kings for mercy, hoping that God will relent from his judgment. They were hoping that God would hear their cries of surrender and repentance for the, what they had done and show them mercy. Mercy. This morning, I want you to think about mercy. The word mercy, uh, Bill Havard sent me an email, email last week, and it, it was fantastic. I had forgotten this. But the word mercy, mercy is defined as not getting what you deserve. Okay, I want you to think about this because I'm going to tell you another word. You've got to think of the opposite. Mercy is getting uh, is not getting what you deserve. In other words, this community, this country, the Assyrians, this city deserved to be destroyed. They're crying out for mercy from God, don't destroy us, hoping he'll change his mind. Jonah's in the belly of the whale, or the fish. <laughs> See, I grew up in the church. He's in the belly of the big fish. What is he praying for? To be delivered from the belly of the big fish. Mercy. He's in the belly of the fish because he deserves to be in the belly of the fish. And he's crying out to God for mercy. That's fine. But God offered more. And that's grace. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. If mercy is not getting what I do deserve, God's judgment, then grace is getting what I do not deserve, which is adoption, a relationship, eternal life, standing out, a task, a ministry, hope. If mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we do not deserve. Do you get it? I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about Jonah 3.10, where it says, when God saw that they had done what they had done, and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind, that line and did not carry out his destruction as he had threatened. So the people cry out for mercy. The king cries out for mercy. The king tells the nation, including the animals, to cry out for mercy. God hears from heaven and doesn't get them what they deserve. 
which is mercy. Now, the word changed his mind here, that phrase, it's also found in the book of Exodus. There's a couple places in Scripture. It could have ju- it is easily uh, been translated, God relented from his judgment. He pulled back. Scripture tells us that God knows the beginning from the end in every circumstance. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And in fact, we have other places in Scripture where God does things that seem awfully human and unsovereign. For instance, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve have sinned, and they sow fig leaves together, and then they hide in the, in the bushes, God comes to meet with them in the cool of the day. You remember the story. And when he comes, he says, Adam, Eve, where are you? And it says that they cry out from the bushes, we're hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we are naked, and we don't want you to see us naked. And God says, who told you you're naked? God always meets us at our level. Take Jesus, for instance. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus Christ is the very image of the invisible God. In other words, when we look at Jesus or his picture, we are uh, seeing a human, but that's only half the story. There's another half, another 100%, and that is his divinity. When, we, when John, the apostle who spent near three years walking with Jesus, has a vision on the island of Patmos, it says that he covered himself up because he was afraid of dying when he saw Jesus in his glory. And he tries to describe who he is. And you can go back and read it in Galatians, or in Galatians, in Revelation chapter 2. When God is in his glory, you see the reality of who he is. When God walked among us, was born of a virgin. When he walked among us, he presented himself as a servant. And it says in Philippians chapter 2, he set his divinity aside so that he could serve us. Because if Jesus Christ had been walking around in all of his glory, nobody to listen to him, they would have run from him. And I believe that it is reasonable, as a parent does to their child, for, to believe, to see through Scripture that God presents himself to us as a father, dealing with us on a level that we understand. God's desire was to save the people of Nineveh from the destruction that was about to rain down on them. How do I know that? Because he did it. The people repented. That's why he sent the prophet to tell them what was fixing to happen in 40 days if they didn't repent. And they do. And I I want you to understand that God's first move in all of our lives is to show mercy. That is his desire. We sang this morning, Holy, 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 the hymn. And then we send the Revelation song where we sing holy, holy. Those are words in Scripture where we cry out to God in eternity. The reality is that the word holy doesn't mean perfection. It means maturity. It doesn't just mean perfection. We have redefined the word holy, the English word holy, as pure. It certainly can mean that, but it also means different. It means, uh, it's, it's from the Greek word sanctuary. It means set aside. It means mature. We are crying out to God when we say holy, 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 not you're righteous, righteous, righteous. We're saying you're different than any other God man has ever even thought of. Of course, Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are the only God that's really God. But he's different than any God that's even been thought of by man. Every other religion, 
Every other God has you hoping to be good enough, chasing God, pleading with God, so that maybe at some point he will show you favor. That's what the sailors were doing on the ship. They were crying out to their gods, trying to find what God needed to be appeased that was bringing the storm. When Jonah says to them, I'm a Hebrew, and my God is the one who made the earth and the sea, immediately they went, oh, that's the God we've been looking for. Well, cry out to him, Jonah. And instead of crying out, he says, look, I'm in the wrong place. You've got to throw me overboard. Understand that there is nobody like Jehovah God. And Jehovah God is not a Baptist God. He's not a Catholic God. He's not a Methodist God. He's not a religious God. He's a God that desires, according to Ephesians chapter 1, to adopt us and make us his children. That is his plan. There is no other God ever even thought of by mankind that want to make us his children. And it's all muddled up by satanic thought that even the church propagates. Everyone born are not the children of God. Everyone born are the creation of God. And it is a remarkably important doctrinal difference. It is only those that are adopted into the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ who have accepted that gift that are adopted into the family of God and are the children of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, what I wrote to you before, God doesn't discipline those who are already under condemnation. He lets them be condemned unless they turn to him. He disciplines us if we're his kids. Jonah was under discipline. The city of Nineveh was under condemnation. And when they realize it, they turn to him for mercy. And he shows them mercy. Everybody with me on this story so far? Because I'm about to show you something that's sad. Okay, everybody with me? They were satisfied, though, with not being destroyed. Mercy was all they wanted. How do I know that? Because some 30 to 35 years after this story is over, an earthquake completely destroys the city. It's absolutely devastated from inside to out. They're overrun. It says, the history tells us that what happens to Nineveh is that it's overrun by its enemies. It's, it's destroyed by an earthquake all at once. Everything that God promised to do this day simply happens 30 years later. They end up destroyed. I cannot say those who cried out to God here didn't receive salvation. But from history, I do know that once they get out from under the weight of this coming judgment from God that Jonah had talked about, that they deserved from the judge of judges, they return to their sin. Assyrian history tells us that. It appears from the surface that they only sought mercy from God and not grace. And that is dangerous. Herein lies the point I want to make for you today. No one likes to be condemned. Nobody wants to go to hell. No one wants to be an enemy of the King of Kings. Nobody. Nobody wants to pay the price for their sin. Not a man or woman before God. Not a bank robber having robbed a bank. Not a man who's caught in the middle of an affair. Or the woman caught in the middle of a lie. Or the person who ate too much deep fried food and ends up before a cardiologist. Nobody wants to pay for their decisions. 
And most of us, including Christians, spend most of our life doing what we want until we get busted. And then we run to God like the Ninevites and Jonah. And we ask him to help us out of the problem that we created. Now, God's merciful. And he does listen. And at times, he gets us out of the stink we made. But that is not why he died on the cross. Because we want to get people saved quickly, we have made the whole story about not going to hell. For the past hundred years, the question of the church is, you don't want to go to hell, do you? In our EE training, uh, I think the Baptist church has a different one. They, they call it faith or something like that. But in EE training... We were taught to do surveys, and we would ask people, if you were to stand before God today, and why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And that was a survey. And it would start a spiritual discussion. Because at the end of the day, we wanted them, at the end of our conversation, to pray a prayer so that they wouldn't go to hell. And then we would hope that they would be discipled after that. But I want to remind you that Jesus' task for the, for the church was not to make Christians, but to make disciples. And I would argue with you today that men and women, most of the, the reason that most of our college kids give up on God is because they're not intimate with God. They're just trying to keep, keep away from hell. Isn't that what we present? We have professional people who go around and, and try to scare the hell out of our kids. I remember uh, when I was younger going to a haunted house and the whole theme was dying. And they would get you to a room that they would heat up and it was hell. And at the end of that, they would try to get you to pray a prayer. Why? Because at the end of the day, that day, they wanted you to respond to the gospel so that you could not go to hell. Now, look, I understand. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it also says, Jesus said, I want you to be born again. We, at the very most, have a lot of babies walking around who just got saved but don't walk with God. You see, his desire for the Assyrians wasn't just that they didn't get destroyed that day, but that they would fall in love with him like the guys on the ship. On the ship, you remember what they did. It says that when they saw the power of God and the storm stopping, it says that they actually cried out to him, repented of their sin, and promised to, uh, vowed to make sacrifice to him the rest of their lives. The guys on the ship at least appear from the story of Jonah to have an interest in knowing the God that they're praying for mercy from. The God of the, Assyri the, the Assyrian people seem to just really want to get out of trouble. Would you look at chapter 4, verse 1 with me real quick? This is the beginning of next week's text. Let it sink in. I want to give you a minute. We don't give you enough time to think for yourselves. So let's get this straight. Leave that up there, Anna. So let me get this straight. So God sends Jonah to Nineveh, and you're going to find out next week that the reason he didn't want to go is because he knew God would show them mercy. So he goes the other way. God puts him in the middle of the belly of a large fish. He cries out to God in chapter 2, and God answers his prayer and spits him up on the shore. Tells him, I want you to go and preach. He goes to Nineveh. God does exactly what he's afraid he's going to do. The people cry out for mercy from God, and they receive it. 30 years later, the city ends up worse than it was before and completely destroyed. And one verse later, we have a prophet who's greatly upset and angry at God for doing what he said he'd do. 
I suggest to you today that Jonah really wasn't interested in submitting this part of his life to the Lord. He was just interested in getting out of the stinky fish's belly. Isn't that your experience? You know, it's, uh, it's amazing to me how often, and I, I, I get it, but I meet with a lot of people who are in trouble. Especially because I've been open, I've been open with you about my struggle in high school with porn. And I've, I think I've told you this on Wednesday night before, but often a wife will catch her husband looking at stuff in the middle of the night, and then she'll beat him up for the rest of the night, and then the next day they'll come into my office, and, and, and she'll bring him in, and I'll yell at him, and she'll yell at him, and we'll make him feel bad, and then... I'll ask her to leave and I'll say, look, I can help you through this because I've had victory over this. But my question for you is, now, what I need to know is, do you want to get out of trouble or over looking at porn or do you want to walk with God? Because they are different questions. The church is really good at helping people not look at porn for the most part until they find out that they were lying. But we don't even ask the question, do you want to walk with God? I'll tell you, the, the thing that I'm most impressed about most people is most of the time, I think actually all the time, but I'll know there'll be exceptions somewhere, but I think all the time that I can remember, they always say, well, let's worry about that later. Right now, I just want to get out of trouble with my wife. Now, some of you just gasp. Isn't that how you are? You get caught cheating on your taxes. What's your first goal? Get out of trouble. I just want to get out of trouble. God, God, if you will, have you prayed that? If you'll, wait a minute, I didn't put you in this position. You put yourself in this position. I love you. I want to help you. But we sound like that teenage kid that wants us to get him out of trouble because they were speeding, wants us to pay the $200 traffic ticket. But then it gets mad when we say, okay, I'm going to put a governor on the car, and if you go past 60 miles an hour, I'm taking the car. Oh, you're such a mean parent. Well, if you drove responsibly, I wouldn't have to do this. There's a reason a lot of us are fat. We eat too much. There's a reason a lot of us spend time having heart trouble. We don't eat well. My advice is eat salad, but put lots of dressing on it. I'm not saying you, I'm saying me too. The reason we get in trouble is because of what we do. And when God stands back and says, okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to let you feel this, we cry out to him, please save us. And then when he saves us, we go right back to what we were doing. Because what we really want from God is mercy, not grace. Look, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But Nehemiah said, and I, I want to remind you of this real quick. I want you to remember that the book of Nehemiah is about how Nehemiah builds the torn down walls around Jerusalem. The cities rebelled against God. They've really screwed up. And just like God promised in the Mosaic Covenant, it is a mess. And so the people cry out to God, and they cry out, and, Nineveh, or, and, and Nehemiah stands up in front of them and says, you need, this is because of our sin. And it says that the people begin to repent, and he calls a day of repentance and mourning, and they do. And when the day is over, the people keep doing it. 
And Nehemiah gets on the rubbles of the wall and he screams at the people, I want you to get rid of the ash from your forehead and your, your body. I want you to redress, take a shower. And I want you to celebrate the goodness of God. For although the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, the, of wisdom, it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. The day of repenting is over. Most religions, I'd include Catholicism, have Jesus on the cross in a perpetual setting. They want to remind you, even Baptist religion, that you are so screwed up. There's no question you're screwed up. But the solution to your screwed upness is not keep looking at yourself. It's looking at God for mercy who has shown you mercy. But I'm here to tell you that God has so much more for you here. Most of us don't throw this verse out very much because we don't know how to deal with it. But Jesus actually said the thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. But I have come so that you can have a full life. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean a healthy life. It doesn't mean a good life as people define good. It doesn't mean you'll be rich. What it means is you will have a full life of task and fullness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit guiding and directing you, leading your life. But it only comes when you want more than mercy from God. With that in mind, I encourage you this week to read the New Testament. Paul continually says over and over, God gave me grace for this. God will give you grace. I'm praying that you have grace for this. You can replace that word grace with giving you more than you deserve. God offers it to you. You've been sold one of those little tiny pieces of Hershey chocolate that is given out at Halloween. You know what I'm talking about? Mini chocolates? When God offers you a Disneyland size bar. Now that's chocolate. The church often offers you this much when God is offering you this much. I can't answer whether or not these people crying out are saved or not. I can't answer that. What I can tell you is they were satisfied with praying a prayer at vacation Bible school and never looked back when God wanted a lifelong relationship that was a father to son to daughter. The number one question I get from people is why don't I experience the joy and peace that's talked about in Scripture? we don't run after it now let me be careful we're all running after a rush I'm talking about saying to God I think I'll get on your bus not ask you to get on mine see that's what chapter 4 is all about that's why he's mad the change of plans greatly upset Jonah why because he didn't want him to save those people and I'll give you a preview of next week what if God wants to destroy this country what if Donald Trump is the man God actually wants to be president? It's going to be bad hair a couple of years. What if Hillary Clinton is his man? What if somebody just vomited? I heard him. What if, what if God has a plan that involves allowing the United States of America not to be what she once was? That could never be. How do you know? Because that's not in my per that's not how I see it. The change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. What happens? What happens if God takes you down a path that you didn't see or you don't want? What happens? 
Hannah, will you play the video, please? been thinking a lot about where we are as a nation and where we are as a community and you know this is a tough community to try to make a living in unless you're in the legal or medical field and uh, or retired in the late times of night at three in the morning when you're not thinking clearly I realize that uh, there's a lot of folks who aren't just not fond of Christianity but they're anti Christianity. America could go there. If the Supreme Court goes that direction, there's nothing to stop persecution of those of us who are greatly serious about the Word of God. You know that, right? Seriously. We're already being maligned, those of us who believe in the Word of God, as equal to those who are killing people. And as a pastor, it makes me think and pray, and I know I overthink. I don't overpray. I need to pray more. But I begin asking myself, God, what would you have me do as a pastor to prepare our hearts for whatever? And I hope we're wrong. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but we've got to be prepared for whatever happens. So I think over the next year or so, we're going to talk about family of God. We're going to go into First and Second Thessalonians, and then we're going to veer out sometimes and look at some stuff. And then after that, probably we're going to do the seven letters to the churches again. I've done that twice here. I love it. But I think it's really important that we take seriously what it is we have and are in Christ. What is this thing we do? Because I just don't think it's going to look like this in 50 years. I just don't think it is. But all of that, all of the unity and the songs that we sing and the programs that we do 
don't mean anything if our hearts are not seeking after God. And as you look at these stories, think about how you've looked at the story of Jonah. You know, you got, you got this kingdom over here that's kind of a side note. And isn't it great how God forgives their sin? But we don't realize that it was only temporary because they still ended up a mess. Why? Because they didn't really turn to God. They just wanted God to turn away from the judgment. God has so much more for us than not going to hell. There's a walk to be walked. There's a life to be lived. There's scary moments to be had together and wonderful moments. There's laughter. There's paying off this building, God willing, next year. There's, there's figuring out how to get people to the mission field. There's praying for each other. And there's difficulty. There's burying people and marrying people. And children being born into the church and discipling them and watching some stray away from the faith and some flat out reject it. Going from a country that wants benefited us from tax positions for being in church and charitable organizations to maybe removing that. From being what even political figures considered as the glue of a culture to becoming the, the scourge of a culture. And in that, nothing's going to change. Not the truth. Not in whom we trust. And we can get together and we can talk about all that and we can try to politically move the country. But unless our hearts are right with God, unless we are surrendered, nothing of value and permanently is accomplished. That's the tragedy of Jonah as it relates to the Ninevites and to Jonah. It wasn't permanent. It was just a good moment. What about us? Do not be satisfied with mercy when God offers you grace. He has spared our fannies from hell, but he offers us life. Run for life. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of the Assyrians and Jonah as a great warning to us. Lord Jesus, I ask you, Father, not to be, I ask you to help us not to be satisfied with eternal, eternal life, just, just not going to hell, heaven. May we want the life you offer. Father, I thank you for your grace and that all that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But I pray that our hearts would hunger for more too often we get saved, whether it be from our physical things, ramifications of sin, or even from hell, and then we run back to our corner to eat of the things that we were saved from. Father, forgive us for finding solace in our sin. Forgive us for finding comfort in our sin. And help us find comfort in you alone. Take this text, take these words, take the songs that we've sung, take the meditations of our heart and use them to transform us into the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
For those of you who don't think I can end before 11, it's 10 till, okay? Bible study is going to start at 11.